0: K.O. here. You are on Turmeric and Tequila, where we are working to inspire positive, radical, social evolution. Mouthful. Just had an amazing cast with Chris Beach. He is a former NHL professional, and he shares his journey that's just remarkable, entering the NHL at a very young age. We're talking 16, 17, I believe he said, and then navigating his journey of a seven-plus year career in the NHL talking about mental health, talking about being traded, talking about how he now has started his company, AIM Mind Training. Uh, it's it's amazing working with young youth and really dialing in the mental game alongside the physical game. If you know and you're and you're on the trendsetting tip, you know how important it is to train the mind alongside your body and your sports skill set and everything else. And it's, it's a true luxury to really dial into that and really dial into what mindfulness is, meditation, and getting a lock on that conversation that's going on in our heads, let alone uh, some of these deeper brain conversations, Alzheimer's, um, PTSD, uh, a plethora of things. So lean into this conversation. If you've got a young athlete at home or you're seeking a better way around mental health, this is a great one for you. I really encourage you to listen and reach out to Chris if you have some questions. He was a reference from Robert Grigor. We talked about EMDR, another mental health and wellness conversation. These are all really, really important things. I am a big believer that if we can dial in our own health and happiness, particularly in the mental arena, we can inspire our society to be just that much more peaceful and get along with one another. Enjoy this one. I I really enjoyed it. Cheers.
1: Welcome to Turmeric and Tequila with your host, Kristen Olson. Questioning a better way, one gracefully disruptive conversation at a time.
0: Welcome to Tumeric and Tequila. I am excited today. We have Chris Beach. He is a former NFL, I'm sorry, NFL, geez NHL hockey here, and he's got a plethora of hockey poses behind him. Uh, yeah. And he's now established his own company. As you know, my Tumeric and Tequila Nation—that's small but growing. I'm a longtime athlete, and I, over the years. Uh, physical health and being an athlete was kind of my entrance to mental health so like myself uh chris hailed from the athletic space and now has a company called aim mind training and in a nutshell it's a student athlete community that helps users better understand who they are what they want and how to approach life with a mindset suited for success happiness and well-being um, i'm going to let him fully dive in but without further ado chris welcome to turmeric and tequila
1: Kristen, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. I've been uh, looking forward to this conversation for a while. It took a little bit of time, yes. for us to come, but here we are.
0: Yes. And in full transparency, my guests know I love Connects of Connects, and I met Chris through Robert Grigor. If you heard one of my prior episodes, we talked about EMDR and a bunch of really forward-thinking mental health approaches. Um, so when uh, Robert was like listen you got to connect with Chris he's an athlete you guys are on the same page and it was about mental health and youth and mental health I was super pumped um so Chris I'm excited let's before we get into the biz and and some of your professional pursuits as far as sports give me a little background on you like where you grew up how you got into hockey how you were as a kid the whole forward one
1: yeah well uh, with as with any um uh, Anyone that I work with as a coach, I think uh, our background is is uh, important as a leader uh, for for people to understand um, where we're coming from and why we do what we do. So, uh, you know, I grew up in in British Columbia here, uh, about five hours east of Vancouver on Trans Canada Highway, a small town called Sycamus, British Columbia. We had a population of about three thousand uh, growing up, and. Um, uh, through the '90s and early 2000s, late '80s, uh, well known to produce uh, high-level athletes in ice hockey. So we've <laughs> we've had about uh, in that time frame about 15 uh, players that either went on to play uh, some form of pro hockey or or a high level of elite junior hockey in Canada. So for that uh, that size of town uh, per capita, we we pumped out some. Some great players, and and uh, you know that's that's where I developed a love of athletics. Uh, I, I played many different sports, primarily organized sports were baseball and hockey, hockey in the winter, baseball in the summer. Uh, but hockey was most definitely uh, the biggest love for me, and and uh, that's where it all started uh, in Sycamus There, uh, some other. Other notable players that I grew up with: uh, Shea Weber of the Montreal Canadiens, Cody Franson, uh who played uh, about eight years in the NHL for a variety of different teams. Uh, so we, we have a, a rich history there. Uh, as a young athlete, I was, uh, you, you could say, uh, a bit of a prodigy, and and uh, you know, I'm not saying that out of uh, ego, uh, just. That, that is what it was and um, you know from a very early age I was being compared to a lot of a lot of players uh, growing up some some really significant uh, players in, in the NHL and and, um, and you know as a 12 13 14 year old there was definitely a lot of a lot of hype around uh, me as a young athlete uh, as a 14 year old I was drafted uh, into the Western Hockey League which is a a tier one junior hockey league here in wow. canada and um i was drafted third overall so considered uh the third best player in western canada at, at 14 and headed to one of the premier junior leagues in canada and for many hockey young hockey players here here in canada uh it's a dream to to play in, in western hockey League, which it was a dream for me as well uh so um big expectations a lot of hype um, you know a lot, of, a lot of hype coming from myself as a young athlete a lot of expectation but also uh, my parents were new to the new to everything they were they were along the, the ride uh, with me and, and um, by no fault of theirs it was a uh, it was something that um, they you know they were fully engaged with as well the hype and and uh, everything that goes with, uh, with, a, with a, an athlete that excels at a young age Uh, From there, went on to play with uh, the Calgary Hitmen of the Western Hockey League for four years. We had uh, phenomenal teams, successful teams. For uh, a few of those years, we were ranked number one in the country. Um, As an 18-year-old, I was drafted to the NHL, uh, seventh overall. So that, that, again, uh, one of the top players uh, considered at my age in the world uh, at that time.
0: What year was Uh, this? Just for frame of reference,
1: that was a long time ago. It was 99, 1999. Okay, well, that's so I graduated was, was, high school. Yeah, that's when I graduated too. So it was a
0: not that long, long time ago.
1: <laughs> long time ago, but I, I still, uh, of course, it's still something that I'm proud of. Uh, yeah. to be, uh, at that level at that age. So, um, and you know, junior hockey was primarily a. a a good experience, but I moved away from home about five hours uh, away from home as a 16-year-old, and lived with a billet family, which um, you know it, it provided its own own hurdles. So, um, as a young kid, managing a variety of different uh, different things in in that environment, that uh, definitely played into it, uh, combined with um, you know performance pressure, expectation, and uh, throughout that time was my my first, um, my first experience with uh, uh, brain health and, and an issue with brain health and uh, from a you know from a, a personal life trauma which uh, I won't get into too much detail about but um, that led to uh, a post-traumatic stress eating disorder. so um, at 17 I started to really have a difficult time uh, eating. Um, eating mass, you know, eating enough as an athlete. I'm yeah. sure you understand the calorie intake. Uh, I had a hard time uh, holding food down. If I ate too quickly or I ate too much, uh, this it would trigger this this stress response, and quite often would end up uh, losing my my meal. So that wow. that was going on um, throughout my junior career, and that would last about five years, where I would. I would have uh, two, three times a week where I would uh, have a hard time uh, eating and as a high-performance athlete. That, that also provided some challenges. Um, so, but all in all, managing all those different experiences through junior, it was, uh, it was a successful time and, and um, I enjoyed it. And I ended up again being successful moving into pro, uh, you know, into the pro game. Um, again, being compared to to many many different uh, high level NHL players, some of them Hall of Famers, and uh, continuing to to build to those expectations and, and a bit of that ego as an athlete, um, you know, went into Washington and there's chatter uh, around the around the team as I was a guy that was going to be a potential franchise player for that organization. Wow. Uh, so a lot a lot to shoulder for. For a young mind um, that, that uh, really um, there wasn't many people in my circle that, that um, uh, had some experience with it so again being grounded was something that uh, that just wasn't there and again no fault to my parents um, and those around me they were they were experiencing it for themselves uh, newly as well so sure. um, yeah so finished my junior career as a property of the Washington Capitals. And then uh, my first year pro as a 20-year-old, uh, right before the season, in the off-season I got, uh, I was involved in a, a major trade uh, to the Pittsburgh Penguins. And it involved myself and, and a couple other prospects, um, young prospects that I was drafted with. Uh, but the player in return was, uh, is a Hall of Famer, Jarmer Jager. Uh, he he's uh, one of the best players to, to play the game. I think he's second or third all time in scoring in the NHL. And at the time, was one of, was the best player in the league. So, um, and all the newspapers and everything around the trade. Again, I was I was uh, considered a big part of that trade, and, and Pittsburgh tagged me as a another potential franchise player. So again, feeding feeding that. Uh, that expectation and that ego a little bit more um, as, a, as a 19 year old I, I signed my first pro contract so they threw a million dollars at me as well so wow. you know you can imagine uh, all those factors in a in a you know a young developing mind and, and uh, it was pretty interesting pretty interesting so um, went into Pittsburgh uh, my childhood idol Mario Lemieux was playing there. He had come back from retirement the year before, so that was a, a surreal experience um, to play with him. Played my first year as a 20-year-old in the NHL uh, with Penguins, and um, you know that it's a that's a tough thing to do in that league as a young player. Had a decently successful year um, as a 20-year-old, and then went into my my second year. Uh, you know, obviously as any athlete hoping to improve on the first year. And I uh, went into that training camp There's a new coach and uh, played played decently well in that training camp. But uh, the team had a, a different plan for me that year. And um, they ended up sending me down to uh, the minor leagues, which uh, on my radar did not exist. There was no, no thought of ever spending any time in the minor leagues, and um, that combined with uh, those expectations that I had built. In fact, I was already, in my mind, that franchise player without, without building up to it and putting in the work, which I had a lot to do. So getting sent down to the minors was uh, a complete and utter shock, and, and um, it would be something that would affect how I viewed uh, the success of, of my entire career. Uh, so it was, it was a significant point in, in my mindset and, and how I uh, approached each experience. I would end up, um, you know, throughout the rest of my career chasing that bar I had set and um, had a hard time uh, viewing anything other than that bar as successful. So I uh, spent uh, four years with Pittsburgh's organization, um, I was up and down with the minor league team and the pro team, or the NHL team, the Penguins for uh, the next few years, but didn't uh, get an opportunity to, to reclaim that that spot uh, on that team. And uh, went into my my fifth year with, uh, with the Penguins. Um, by that time they had drafted Sidney Crosby and Vietni Malkin. Uh, so I clearly knew I wasn't a young gun in town anymore. And uh, you know that obviously didn't deter me from wanting to contribute to that team and, and playing alongside players like that. So I went in to that training camp, uh, and uh, two days before camp, I got a call from the GM, and he informed me that I was going to be be traded to uh, the Nashville Predators. And now, for four years, I had built uh, you know uh, many great friendships. Um, you know, my girlfriend was from Pittsburgh. And uh, all of a sudden, in a a day, I was off to uh, a whole new uh, experience. And so it was was definitely a a change uh, that I had to manage. And um, a whole new set of uh, players, a whole new set of prospects, figuring out where I would fit in in Nashville. Went in uh, to that camp, which was quite a neat camp. I mentioned our small town of 3,000. Um, there was three of us at that Nashville camp from Sycamus, so three players uh, that were at an NHL camp from a really small town. Uh, so that was quite quite a neat experience there. Um, did well in that camp, uh, but ended up uh, getting sent down to the minors again, and, and uh, the GM had some choice words for me. And he, he basically said, you have, you have all the tools and you have the size. And he said, but there's something missing. And that, that, uh, that stuck with me for, for a long time and, and um, uh was hard for me to figure out what was missing. So I went down to the minors in Milwaukee and um, had one of the best years at that level uh, to date. Uh, got called up to Nashville a number of times, um, or one time, sorry. Uh, but it ultimately uh, played the majority of the year in the minors. Uh, three quarters of the way through that year. Uh, I got traded again. So another change, another trade, and I got traded back back to the team that drafted me, uh, the Washington Capitals. Um, so I uh, talked to the GM, and he, uh, he informed me that I would come in there and play with, uh, with the big club for the rest of the year, which was about 20 games. And that's what I wanted. I wanted to be in the NHL, and I uh, was looking forward to that opportunity. Alex Ovechkin... Another star was in his first year, his rookie season. He scored 50 goals, which is uh, quite amazing. So I got to see his act uh, a little bit, which was uh, neat to see. It was quite quite the environment. There's a lot of uh, Russian dance music and disco balls <laughs> in the dressing room, which was quite interesting. But yes. um, yeah, so but again, that experience didn't turn out how I expected it. I expected to go there for 20 games. Uh, a few games in, I got called into the coach's office and he informed me that I'd be sent down to the minors again. So down to Hershey, Pennsylvania, chocolate town. I uh, was there for a couple of games, got called back up to the capitals, played another two games there, and then back down uh, to Hershey where the team told me I would be there uh, the rest of the year and help that team go on a, a playoff run. And once I got down to Hershey and got to know my teammates, uh, you know, they, it was a, a tight knit family group. Great coach in Bruce Boudreau, and uh, I had a, an amazing time in Hershey, and we ended up winning uh, the minor league championship that that year, which is uh, no easy trophy to win. Uh, so it, was, uh, it turned out to be one of my greatest accomplishments in in hockey, and uh, I quite often say it came from it came from getting uh, not what I expected in Washington there. So. Um, a great accomplishment from there. Uh, I played well. I, I, uh, was one of the top top players in, in the playoffs I Had a lot of confidence heading into that off season, resigned with the Capitals and went in and made the Capitals team uh, and played a full year with the Washington Capitals, uh, in this being my, uh, my sixth year, uh, pro. So, um, battled back and find, found my way back to the NHL uh, had a decent year that year uh, did what I could with the, the playing time that I got and uh, headed into the next offseason uh, Washington had informed me a little insight into the business here I um, was talking to them and they said you know we are uh, considering qualifying you which means we give you you know they have to Uh, Through the collective bargaining agreement if they want to retain your rights at a certain age They have to give you a qualifying offer, which at that time was an offer that was a 10% uh, pay rise, Uh, but they told me they were deciding between me and another player and uh, Literally two minutes before that deadline of their decision They called me and said that they were gonna go with the other player. So off to free agency. I went again and uh, started talking to some teams Narrowed it down to uh, to the Columbus Blue Jackets. Uh, the coach had some good things to say about my opportunity there, so I was excited to to head in there and, and uh, to earn a job. Uh, played well in camp. Got down to the last cuts of that team, and uh, ended up um, heading back down to the minors of that uh, of that club. Um, and at this point uh, in my career, um, there was a significant uh, wall that I hit in terms of uh, my resilience capacity, yeah. and their minor league team was in in Syracuse, and uh, I look back on that time um, quite often, and especially when I tell this story, and uh, uh, really I, I I wonder how I made it through that time and stuck with uh, with playing. It was a significant challenge away from the ice. It was hard for me to enjoy. Uh, being at the rink, um, it was uh, I was struggling uh, away from the rink and and uh, it was uh, the first time that I had been uh, diagnosed with major depressive disorder. Uh, so a challenging time. and um, somehow I found a way to to play well enough to uh, to get called back up to the NHL. Uh, but at that time, you know, I was a professional. I knew, I knew what it took to contribute even though i wasn't feeling uh feeling great so i was able to contribute get the call back up to the big club and um, ended up being there for two months and played some of the best hockey of my nhl career in columbus for those two months Uh, two months came around and again another insight into the business of hockey at that time um, my contract was a was a two-way contract one one Uh, salary for the NHL a lower salary for the minor league system and the team after two months had to decide and tell me if I was gonna be there for the rest of the year and if I was they had to tell me to get a place uh, find a place to stay because at the time I was living in a hotel Um, so there was a little loophole in that that decision-making process where uh, they could they could place me on waivers uh, which meant it would give other teams an opportunity to pick up my contract. And if I cleared waivers then, and stayed with the organization, uh, they could keep me in the NHL and it'd give them another two another two months to make that decision. So uh, they, they put me on waivers in the middle of the week and they fully intended on keeping me. There was a game on Saturday and they said, if you clear waivers, you'll be playing on Saturday. So onto waivers, I went, um, didn't hear much for for a few days, and then uh, I get a call uh, after a few days, and and uh, uh, my agent informed me that I got picked up uh, by another team, and that team was the Vancouver Canucks, which uh, was my uh, essentially my hometown. So I was uh, I was bummed about leaving Columbus because it was a great a uh, great team, a lot of good teammates. I kind of found a, a role. A spot on that team and was playing well so it was hard to leave um but now heading into Vancouver another opportunity to to play on a good team and, and play in front of my family and friends uh so I was pumped pumped to go there off to uh off to Vancouver I went and uh, wasn't there long I was there for about five games and and uh got called into the coach's office and the coach informed me that uh, he didn't think I was fast enough for his team or for the league, and that he thought I should uh, go down to the minors to work on my speed. So uh, back on to waivers I went, uh, and, and of course um, it was a, a bit of a confusing uh, message because the coach at Columbus um, essentially said I had proved that I was a regular NHL contributor. So again, you know, really challenging to, to manage those mixed messages. Um, back on waivers opening up to other teams and uh, was unsure about uh, the future without a doubt I got a call again and I got picked up so um, I got picked up by the Washington Capitals so the team I was on the year before I got a call from the, the GM and he said you know what we should have qualified you we're glad to have you back and I uh, called all my buddies in Washington to let him know I was coming back so it was exciting to, to head back there. Went to the airport and uh, on my way down got to the U.S. customs agent and uh, asked me the the regular questions. What are you going to do down there? Said I'm going to go play uh, play hockey in Washington and he started sifting through my passport and he said well where's your P1 work visa and I said uh, I don't know and then he, he informed me well I think the Canadian agent must have stripped it out of your passport as you came up to Canada. So I'm not going to be able to let you uh, get across the border without that visa. So on the phone with with, um, with the GM and let them know what was going on. And uh, they started looking into it. And I went to the uh, the hotel at the airport. Um, was training in the gym there, trying to stay in shape, waiting to hear... Uh, didn't hear anything for a few days and then i uh, got a call from the gm i uh, thought it was going to be a visa but it turned out that they uh put me on waivers again so back on waivers uh that would be the third time in a matter of a few weeks uh so again by this time i had to i had to cope in some way so um it became a bit of a, a joke with with uh with my brother and I, and uh, used a little humor to try to manage the, uh, the chaos a little bit. Uh, a few days went by, and uh, lo and behold, I got picked up again by another team, uh, that team being the Pittsburgh Penguins, so the team where, where it all started. So um, back to the Penguins, and at uh, this time in, in 2008, they were, they were a powerhouse. Uh, Sidney Crosby, Malkin, Marian Hossa ended up there marc Andre Fleury ended up there, so uh, an opportunity to go there and contribute uh, potentially to an NHL playoff team. Um, so exciting times! Five games into that uh, that opportunity, after spending uh, ten days at the border waiting for my my visa um, and not being on the ice, I got to Pittsburgh and um, got into five games with the Penguins that year. Fifth game in, uh, went into a battle with a, a big veteran defenseman, and um, I tried to I tried to hit him before he hit me, and it didn't exactly go my way, and I uh, went flying to the boards and landed on my wrist, broke my wrist. Five games into that uh, opportunity, and and at that level, it's doggy dog. So um, you're out with an injury. There's someone else uh, right on your heels. Uh, ready to take that opportunity. So, um, you know, they, they kept me around, uh, obviously, to recover. And right before playoffs, uh, they could have sent me down to, to the minors, but they kept me as, a, as, a, as an extra player for their run. Uh, so I got to be around that team and, and be a part of that team in 08. They went all the way to the Stanley Cup finals against the Red Wings. Uh, so I got to see what those guys did night in night out the focus and the attention uh to detail required to to perform at that high level um they didn't end up winning but uh it was a it was a phenomenal experience and i was that close to to uh being part of a stanley cup push which is all every kid's dream so um yeah that was my my first seven years of uh my career and um uh, there's eight more years of European experience uh, to t- that I could talk about, but I won't go that far. Um, <laughs> point being, it was a mix of success and a mix of uh, adversities. Um, you know, all the while managing, uh, you know, mental health uh, along the way. Uh, that would that would be a that would be a significant battle for me continuing on into Europe. Um, you know a couple years into to Sweden uh, I finally received a, a correct diagnosis uh, from a psychiatrist there um, of uh, bipolar disorder so uh, I was first diagnosed with major depressive disorder which was not the, the correct diagnosis and and um, it's in that year where I, um, I discovered uh, the practice of mindfulness and um, you know, it it, uh, it came through my own exploration um, at the time. There was a number of books coming out about uh, neuroplasticity. There was a lot of research coming out uh, saying that the brain is malleable and plastic. Um, that research led me to to figuring out uh, how to make those changes in the brain and how to how to change some of the uh, thinking patterns, emotional patterns, and behavioral uh, patterns that I had unknowingly uh, encouraged uh, over the years and, and how to make some changes there. Because my performance was, was suffering. Uh, my enjoyment for the game was, was virtually nil. And uh, uh, again, it was a really challenging time. But I, at the same time, I was a professional. I knew how to contribute to the team no matter how I felt. Uh, so that was uh, that was uh, uh, I was able to to do that uh, in one of the best leagues in the world, but um, definitely a significant challenge. It was hard on on uh, not only myself but my girlfriend, who was my wife at the time or wife now. Um, significantly challenging for her to manage that, um, and you know I, I didn't really accept the diagnosis and. I went on some medication to help with it and uh, there was something about that stigma of being on medication that i didn't like so i would i would go on it for a while and i'd feel better and then i would i would do my best to to try and go off and um, it was uh, definitely created an up and down situation with with uh, my mental health Um, mindfulness though uh, played a significant role and had a huge impact in my performance i was able to to really find my my game again and find the love of the game again uh based on on my commitment and time into that practice and training the mind in that way and it also of course helped with well-being uh, away from the arena and and within my relationships so yeah uh, significant impact on on uh you know the choices i was able to make um, that that we're we're healthy and and uh, influenced myself and others um, in in a good way. So uh, well, yeah. I, so over yeah. Oh, so I, so
0: over. I, I don't want. I just want to interrupt there right, just really quick because I really want to get into that mindfulness piece and um, break down the timeline because it's it, any athlete knows it, it's so hard to go to take a love something you do for fun and you love it in hockey. You guys are professionals so young and competitive so young. Even if you're not in the NHL. Um, yeah. it, that pressure, when well, you take something you love, you do for fun, and then it becomes a job and you're a commodity. So that in itself, very baseline, that mental transition, I think is really hard. I struggled with that. At, I was 18, 19 in college, a freshman year. And kind of even just being on scholarship, I couldn't imagine if it was, you know, millions of dollars or a million dollars, which is insane. Um, as, you know, 16, 17, 18, 19, that, that in itself is hard. Then you pack in the trading and not having a home base and- the the struggle i'm assuming the love with the game with the business side which you kind of have to learn on the fly um i gotta ask you and i want to get to the business and and then really unpack this mental health training because i think when we were growing up or at least in my household which i graduated in 99 you know i I competed at high level it was women's across we can only get so high but um and then even at crossfit we were at the games and everything post-college the mental training like we did a little bit around visualization and some basic stuff, but no really unpacking of anything in depth, especially if you had like a trauma, which most people at various degrees have had trauma in some capacity. Um, so it's it's eye opening to me that we hadn't had those conversations at that point, but then on the flip side, I look back and I'm like, well, of course we didn't, because it really wasn't, no celebrities were talking about it, nowhere, I mean, even at the highest levels where they, that you're exposed to every avenue to build that competitive edge. Um, and human optimization, it's still pretty new. Um, and you guys, us too, we had you know concussions. And even from injury, I'm surprised there wasn't further conversation. Um, so there's a couple questions around the background we discovered, and we'll dive into the biz. Uh, first thing I gotta ask, what did you do with a million dollars at 17, 18, 19 years old? How, excuse, I gotta ask.
1: Yeah, well, I... Uh... I bought a car for sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, bought a nice car, and looking back, I think um, it was nice at the time. But I think, uh, again, speaking about being grounded, I, there was a, there was a lot of work to be done before I deserved to be driving that that type of car around. Sure. So, um, yeah, and then other than that, I. Uh, Another component of it again was um uh some shadow side behavior involved in that that experience yeah. as well so uh, you know partying was was definitely part of that uh, experience um started out as uh just you know fun like any any young kid uh, uh bonding with the team uh but it eventually grew into a way of coping with with stress and and uh some of the ups and downs of, of the career, um, so uh, so that was yeah that was definitely part of the experience as well and, and sure. played a role in the ups and downs. Um, but yeah, the money uh, you mentioned, you, you nailed it. Uh, there's a variety of different motivating factors in in that elite level of sport, and money um, being one of them, one of those external. Motivators, um, status, uh, you know, comparisons to others, um, uh, recognition, which is, um, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But uh, definitely, those external motivators are something um, you know to be aware of. And if, if we put, uh, which was in my case, if we put if the balance is tipped in those um, those external motivations. Uh, it's going to be it's going to be challenging in terms of the enjoyment of the sport Um, what I've noticed with the best players that I played with the best athletes in the world uh, they didn't they didn't really focus uh, so much on the money it was almost like they were interacting with the game like they did when they were eight nine years old and um, you know that wasn't uh, that wasn't uh, their their primary motivation their primary motivation was uh, improvement uh, constant improvement uh, uh, seeing what they were capable of uh, of course driving towards uh, you know uh, winning and um, that was their their primary motivation their the internal motivation the satisfaction of, of self-improvement and, and seeing what you're capable of uh, so with the with the best players in the world, that is something that I can reflect on and say, yes, these guys were were with and engaging in the game in that way. Um, so, uh, and you know, so definitely the business side of things, the external uh, side of things, um, if, if there's a lot of focus on on those, uh, it will definitely make it more challenging. So, sure. um, do the NHL. Find-
0: but did the nhl provide any you know as a young human a lot of you guys going in there are super young i mean we're talking i don't know under 21 um did they give you any coaching as far as like here's what's going to come with you know money finances mental health groupies like all i mean there's a lot of education i think the nba actually does
1: the nba is really quite progressive uh in some of the i don't know so many of the details but i I've seen some articles and they are progressive in that type of education, but no, we didn't, uh, we see received a little bit. Um, yeah. my agent, uh, they did their best to, to manage that side of things. Uh, again, my parents were really new to the whole situation. So, and we had access through the NHLPA to some of the best psychologists in North America. Mm-hmm. And, um, I took, I took advantage of that to, for the, you know, for the most part, but, um, and again, I understood that that side of the game was important. Um, but what I found with, with sports psychology is that, uh, you know, it, it had its, uh, for me, it had its limits. It was a lot sure. of talk, and there wasn't, as, there wasn't a really tangible uh, way of, of uh, engaging with, with sports psychology and, and training some of the things that we were talking about, at least at that time. Sure. Uh, and that's why mindfulness really hit home with me uh, because it was a tangible, as tangible as you could get, um, with that type of training. Uh, yeah. You know, it, it, it was something that I knew I could I could sit down and and practice because I I, I felt uh, when I practice it there was a, a state of a state of being that I noticed uh, almost immediately. Um, I also noticed that um, that I experienced moments of, of silence, uh, in between my constant, uh, negative ruminations. And I said, and, and knowing what I had learned through neuroplasticity, I, I I said, well, okay, well, that is something that I need to repeat finding, uh, finding those moments of silence within that practice. So, and as an athlete, I knew how to commit to, to training. And, um, and that's what you know, really resonated with me about training focus and attention in that uh, particular way through mindfulness. So, um, so, you know, obviously I learned a lot from sports psychologists, uh, learned a lot of, um, gained a lot of experience there. And that combined with, uh, you know, that support combined with mindfulness uh, was really where I was able to, to turn the corner on, on some of the, uh, you know thinking uh, emotional and behavioral patterns that, that were quite uh, quite ingrained in in my way of way of being
0: Sure. Well, so, and I, I mean, just not this, and, you know, again, we're talking about this is the surface level stuff, but even just not having a home, um, I don't have statistics, but I know even just somebody that's moved, you know, if you're an athlete or a music star or something that's on the road, someone that doesn't have a home base in itself, I think is, is super, super challenging. And this, again, is the professional and athletic side. And then you mentioned, you know, relationship, personal, family, to manage all that is a whole other stressor. Um, and again, you're a zero year old, so you don't have, you know, any of these skill sets so it's pretty remarkable that you could navigate these waters you know for six years i think you said the nhl and then you did the european league for another seven um that's that, that's insane to me. Uh, at what point did you really start to say, okay, the talk therapy, which I think around like '90s to like late '90s, mid 2000s, I think the real human optimization outside of like military, where you know these guys are paid to stay alive and, and keep themselves together, which the VA is a whole other conversation. Um, but where, where people were really starting to get on the trendsetting tip of. Uh, mental health, brain health, concussions, trauma, neuroplasticity. Um, I've been fortunate enough to do brain mapping and some of this um, neurological stuff just because I was an athlete in in some companies I've worked with. But tell me when you really started to say, okay, talk therapy is, I've got what I think I can get from it. When were you introduced to the next best thing? And and tell me about what now that what you call mindfulness is for you and how you do it on the daily.
1: Yeah, well, I think it was it was definitely in in Sweden there. Um, You know, it's just, I wasn't, again, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't able to, to improve um, my, the way I was interacting with, with the experience. So it was, it was to a point where I had to choose, um, choose, do I continue playing or, you know, do I, do I stop? And, and um, that's really uh, what, spurred me on to to find a way to continue um and and spurred on the exploration uh that went beyond simply talking to somebody um you know and 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 that exploration of, of neuroplasticity so that was really uh that that was the point and um, what year was this this was uh 2011. Okay, 2011 yeah 2010 2011 um and after that it was uh, it's been a daily practice since and wow. uh, i started out building up slowly uh for the first uh month or two and then um i noticed again that state that state change in and around a formal practice of mindfulness where you sit down and you practice uh focusing on a specific focal point for me uh, I had been reading a lot of Zen tradition at that time, so uh, Vipassana insight um, uh, practice centered around breath awareness was was what I really focused on. Uh, and for me, it was uh, sensations in my nostrils as I was uh, breathing in and out. That, um, that so, is was this my meditation focus. essentially? It is uh, it's different. A mindful meditation, yeah, definitely. Um, okay. Yeah. So and. Uh, Again, uh, one point in focus on the breath is what I started out with. And from there, um, I would practice that um, every single day for almost uh, two years. So I worked a lot with uh, the movement and sensations of the breath, which with, with athletics, especially in a, uh, in a cold uh, building like uh, like the arena, uh, the, the distinct temperature change in the nose is very easy to focus on. So um, so I would sit every day uh, formally. I'd find a space, quiet, do the whole close my eyes, sometimes eyes open um, for a specific amount of time. And that's called a formal practice. And um, I, I, I describe that nowadays uh as you know, setting up a, a squat rack for the mind. Um, <laughs> so getting in that squat rack for the mind and, and repping out, uh, you know, uh, that that focus and that attention and and working on uh, the awareness of of the mind wandering to, to thinking, and uh, that's uh, that's the process that we're training is is that awareness when the mind is moving away from from uh, from our focal point and that opens up uh, our choice on where our attention is and what we what we give energy to in terms of our thinking um, and uh, being able to choose to return back to a focal point which was my my breath so that formal squat rack practice um, if we think of that in terms of athletics uh, we, we do I don't know how many things to get bigger stronger faster more explosive we work on balance mobility leg strength conditioning all these different things hours upon hours of work to uh, get bigger stronger faster more agile Um, and uh, obviously trains the mind in in its own in its own way Um, but sitting down and and working with the mind in a different way through mindful meditation also um, with repetition we can see uh, physical changes uh, in the brain in, in relation to um, attention regulation, emotional regulation, uh, decision making. Um, so I, I rep that out every day and then I would take what I worked on in that formal practice and I would apply it to uh, my activity. So, and this is a, uh, a very deliberate choice uh, within activity to pay attention Uh, to the breath and um, you know for me uh, I understood that right away that it wasn't gonna feel natural Uh, I understood that it was gonna feel uh, it was gonna be challenging and it it wasn't gonna be natural just like any other skill that we learn or any physical conditioning or strengthening that we go through I I don't know about you but there was days in, in the gym where I absolutely was you know, in pain, and it was not comfortable. Um, And I'm not saying mindfulness uh, gives you pain, but it's definitely challenging and and not always comfortable. So uh, applying it to activity will feel challenging in the beginning. And I worked on, for the last five years of my career, which I I fully, um, the support I had around me, plus uh, mindfulness, um, I I put a significant, you know, uh, onus on mindfulness as a, as extending my career five years for sure. Um, and I, I worked on integrating, um, those practices into every element uh, of the competitive environment in and around the dressing room, um, in practice, in games, finding opportunities to, uh, to ensure that I was present and engaged, uh, with, with the moment. And, um, And that was, uh, you know, a phenomenal practice because it it led to freeing up my uh, skill, ability, know-how that I knew was in there, that I I knew was there, but was being handcuffed by some of these, um, you know, negative thinking uh, patterns over the past uh, um, number of years that I had uh, built up. And... um, uh, it was it was a way of uh, experiencing that that uh, that moment um, with what we call a beginner's mind, which uh, for me uh, it essentially was a way of learning how to be with the game, like I was when I was a kid. Uh, mm-hmm. Relearning, relearning how to be with the game, like I was when I was a kid, and that was really um, what it was all about. And at the time, I didn't think of it that way, but reflecting back on it. Um, that's what it was it was really all about and
0: well and that's what so. you said you saw the, when the best players you remember playing alongside that it sounds like they maintained that mentality. Um, you know, and that's likely what led to their greatest success. You obviously need the full recipe of, you know, training mentality (laughs) and natural ability. Um, was there, you said you were reading books, but was there any one person or practice that was guiding your evolution in this mindfulness practice? Or were you just kind of pulling from different books and and tools to kind of build your own practice?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, the, um, I definitely followed the Zen tradition um, initially, uh, reading books from Thich Nhat Hanh and uh, uh, Suzuki. uh, A book called um, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind uh, is something, a small little book uh, that I refer to to this day. Um, And I don't, I actually don't, uh, I don't shift away from, from that book too often um another book that was instrumental in in my research was uh, the practical neuroscience of uh, love and happiness by rick hansen uh so he he essentially he's a significant researcher in the area and um he, he wrote a phenomenal book and i think it was released in 09 and that really shed some light on on um you know the a little bit of uh, the history of human development and, and some of the uh, natural uh, biases towards uh, negative thinking that we have. Um, I learned about our uh, sympathetic response and, and how it uh, is triggered by uh, daily stressors and, and how that, that response due to our, due to our uh, evolutionary past is one of survival and quite often it'll feel like our our life is is threatened um which was a significant eye-opener for me both learning about the negativity bias of of our thinking uh and everyone just to varying degrees of course uh and then that uh that element of, of the nervous system um you know plus the the science behind meditation that book was um instrumental to me uh he's got a newer newer book called hardwiring happiness um, which again is is uh in relation to his research um but that little that little zen book is um it's uh you can spend you can read one paragraph and uh spend a lot of time uh thinking about it and implementing it and how it relates to uh, to many different things in life. So, um, Absolutely. it's definitely, it's definitely, a, a, a read, um, where you, uh, you'll read it first and, and then you'll, you'll be like, wait a second, let me go back and, <laughs> and, and check that out. So those, those books, um, were did somebody
0: give that to you. So when you were in Sweden, it was someone like, was it a coach or a, a, just a human in your environment? Like, how did that happen? I'm always curious at the yeah. standard of all these.
1: Yeah, no, I was actually a uh, family friend who was a, a, a priest um, of the Swedish church, and okay. he actually uh, he actually uh, married my wife and I uh, later on, and he was a, a friend of uh, my wife's family, and he he was an interesting guy. And the Swedish church is, um, they are, in terms of churches, uh, where churches are, they are very very open-minded, uh, a very open-minded church. Um, so he he spent a lot of time uh, linking uh, Zen practice with with uh, the messages of Christianity. So he would find find um, those linkages. And by, I'm not a I'm not a really spiritual person. I'm not, I've never really gone to church. I'm not. That's not um, that's not something that I really focus on. Um,
0: well, you can be spiritual without being religious. Cause I, I actually yeah. think the mindfulness, cause I'm with you. I didn't, I'm actually very Swedish. So I'm going to check out this church. Um, and it recently started to re-unpack some of these ideas around religion, which in full transparency has been a little bit hard. I would consider myself deeply spiritual, uh, but not really religious. Um, and I, But I think the breathing and connecting with self is spiritual and keep in mind, it's all subjective. So you can kind of label how you like, but um, yeah. Just my two cents on spirituality.
1: <laughs> yeah, definitely. I, 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 um, I, I, I agree there hundred percent. And, um, for me, I've kind of, I've kind of developed this again through mindfulness, um, an attitude towards, uh, those types of labels, uh, for, for me being as present as often as I can is, is, is enough. And, um, being present with with myself and being present with with people that I'm that I'm speaking with, and of course it's it's a uh, it's a challenge, and it's there's still lots of learning going on, and lots of lots yeah. of times where I I I still lose lose control, and um, I'm still you know still learning as I as I go here. But um, uh, he he definitely that was he gave me that little Zen book. Uh, some other the other books I I. Um, found on my own uh my mother actually sent me a book um uh oh, what is it? how to change your brain and there's was a book on the latest neuro neuroplasticity research
0: okay and that
1: one, yeah thank you mom she, yeah. she's uh yeah she's a i get my curiosity from her she's um my, my father's a physician and and uh she's been in in uh they've been in rural health here in BC for 40 years. And she's, she's a curious, uh, curious soul and curious mind. Um, So she's, she's always been there with uh, suggestions. So yeah, that's, again, the support I had there was, was great. And um, isn't it uh, funny?
0: I just got to say you, like you have your, you know, a plethora of resources from these, you know, billion dollar organizations with, you know, Recovery and fascial stretching and, you know, training, whatever. And then all some of your best shifting resources are coming from, like, the church, from mom, from (laughs) from stuff that's not even in those, like, high-end conversations or high-end professional situations. Um, It's always crazy. You kind of have to seek... And this is a good message to anyone in any environment you're in. The answer might not be right in front of you, but it's probably around you, just not in the space you're looking, as cliche as that sounds.
1: No, for sure. And that's part of... That's a big part of um, A Mind training, uh, and and um, uh, big part of the education that I'm doing my best to uh, get across to organizations, leadership, uh, kids. Uh, that these yeah, so, are. So tell yeah, us. I'm,
0: I'm interrupting you all, all here, but I think there's a little bit of delay. That's fine. Um, I but- can, <laughs> is tell tell me about Aim. So Aim, tell me when you started it, and then because I think this will be pers- perfect crossover. Because I'm so excited that young humans, you know, had you know our 14 year old selves had these conversations. I think it would have been a game changer. I, I do think we went through process for a reason, and you know why I started this podcast to start exposing the truth that, you know, it took me forever to find some of them, and we're still learning. Um, how did Aim? When did you start it, and how did Aim kick off? And tell us a little bit about it, and then I'll have a hundred questions from there.
1: Yeah, well, it started uh, through, uh, obviously, the impact mindfulness had, and um, after a a couple of years, I found myself um, teaching curious uh, friends uh, a little bit about meditation, mindfulness, and I said, you know what, if I'm going to be talking to people about this, I should probably figure out a way to be educated on, on sharing it appropriately. Um, so I got, I got certified in 2015, uh, through a program in, um, in Arizona, Sarah McLean Meditation Institute. And now it took me about a year and a half to find a certification at that time. There wasn't many around and, um, hers was, uh, you know, kind of linked up with my, uh, the areas that I studied and, um, practiced in and uh she's predominantly uh her her audience is predominantly middle-aged uh, middle-aged women and women so it was uh, i was doing this certification with um with that uh that group which you know it was completely fine um but she they see
0: this young hockey guy walk in You're, they're probably like this is awesome <laughs> yeah
1: yeah and i pop pop out my teeth and yeah <laughs> Uh, but it was a phenomenal experience. I did about a year, a year um, of work and then a, an intensive at the, at, at the end. And she, uh, Sarah a phenomenal job with that, that program. Um, and it, to this day, I'm also, I also uh, went through the Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction Teacher Intensive, um, which, was, which is a great program as well. But I I, uh, continually revert back to many of the uh, aspects of Sarah's uh, program. She did a phenomenal job of simplifying uh, language and um, making it relatable in terms of communicating the philosophy and how to establish a consistent practice. Um, her, the way she did it is, uh, is phenomenal and, and it breaks it down in a simple way that people can relate to um, so a uh, great program so I got certified and um, at the end of my career uh, I went to Belfast, Ireland to play and I studied a master's in, in sports management um, so I just ha- had this idea to, to, to create a company where I teach mindfulness to people and um wanted to focus on athletes of course and combine my real life experience with with my mindfulness experience and certification and then add on uh the masters in sports management um led to to me starting uh, a business after i retired in in 2016. so i've been i've been coaching and and uh teaching in that capacity for the last four years and I wrote a business plan for my master's thesis that that included uh, not only myself as a coach but uh, multiple coaches on a platform and uh, it took a it took a few twists and turns um, along the way but we are uh, we are there and we've developed a, uh, a not only a a good group of of people and uh, mentors counselors coaches um, but we're looking. Uh, we're looking at uh, providing a service that that can actually show um, these skills these intangible skills uh, and and show that there is uh, a relation a relationship to um, we know there's a relationship to well-being um, but we have a, a way of uh, showing that there's a relationship to uh, performance and yeah. we want to we want to be able to say hey uh, these are equally as important to individual or group performance as working on your physical skills. And in order to do that, um, uh, we definitely need to, to show some, some research and data. Um, because with the intangible elements of the experience, um, they're intangible, it's, they're hard to see. If you take, and that's the thing, if you take Sidney Crosby uh, and you look at him You can see his tangible skill set you see it but with that guy his intangibles are off the charts Um, but for many people that aren't around it uh, and i i wasn't you know i was i didn't play a long time with him, but i was there and long enough to notice his character and uh what type of person he was Uh, but for the outsiders they can only see that tangible skill they don't see They don't see the intangibles uh, present in players like that. So it's really hard to communicate the importance um, of these character skills and traits um, when they're very hard to see in in the top athletes because everyone just sees all the technical skills. So um, in my mind, uh, from my perspective, um, we need to to somehow make this this visible, the, the improvement Uh, That can be,
0: yeah. Do you think that, uh, what's the average age of the kids you're working with?
1: Um, Between uh, 12 and and 18. So I, yeah, yeah. And then I've, I've, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead.
0: Well, I, I to me, I, I, I and it's funny cause I'm gonna, you know, marketing and branding is obviously a different arena than, um, mental health. Although, you know, there's <laughs> co-branding opportunity there. Um, it's, there's so many intangibles around it. Like you see influencers out there and this is again, why I started the podcast to really talk about what people are doing, why, how, you know, influence and these influencers are truly influential. Yes. We can, you know, talk about conversions and sales, but people don't really, I don't think, they see, it's hard for me to, to qualify and quantify how them seeing athlete on screen impacts their reality or vision of themselves. If I've got, you know, a supermodel editing their body, how that impacts my young females. I can't show you a measurable, but do I know that's happening? Do I know it's significant? Absolutely, so that's something I face. Um, and I like that you sought after some of these resume qualifiers. Like, I think it's always good to educate and get their certificate. And we know in America, we like to see credentials. We like to see, even if, you know, you've been through the NHL, you've been through this plethora of experience, that you can't put a resume you know asterisk to but that is the gold part and then you know we do the resume piece that kind of helps balance both um my long-winded question do you see that our young humans are really starting to understand this without having to see that tangible and they're like i know this is a piece of the game and i know you know these humans at this level that are fully optimizing every angle of things that this is a necessary piece like do you think they get it at a younger age because they've started to have these conversations
1: Yeah, I I think um, definitely, and the kids that I work with, to it, it, uh, uh, they they blow me away sometimes with their with their uh, understanding and, and their questions, and um, uh, indicates that they are they are becoming more self-aware, and and what what um, you know what certain thinking leads to certain behavior and emotion and, and uh, um, I think as adults quite often we think that kids of that age aren't mature enough to, to realize that and there might be some that that are more mature than others but um, I definitely think um, the younger coaches uh, coming up uh, the younger kids younger kids are are more open to it without a doubt it's it's uh, it's uh, the older leadership uh, of these organizations that um, that are definitely more of a challenge and they're open to having it around uh, you know they're open to yeah we got this but yeah. to actually implement it into a development program as uh, a regular um, allotment of time and a significant significant allotment of time is uh, is definitely what we're working towards And um, you know so it's it's definitely getting better and some sports are are better than others uh hockey is definitely a tough nut to crack it's it's pretty old school it's pretty pretty macho and uh um it's uh but it's getting there it's coming along um and you know for example i do i i worked with the national field hockey team oh sorry okay.
0: (laughs) this is a part of the zoom fun here
1: (laughs) yeah yeah well I it keeps us humble I've been using my wife's computer the last little while because mine just gave out so I'm (laughs) on my phone here normally I'm on a computer but um what I was saying is uh yeah I've been working with the national men's field hockey team here in Canada and there's a program that's um that's really quite open to it and and, um, I've had those guys sitting in a room together, uh, multiple times, practicing mindfulness and, and, um, there's been some positive feedback on, on, uh, implementing the skills. So, uh, definitely other sports are more progressive. I think basketball is, is one of the most progressive sports in the area. A lot of the top stars, um, uh, work on these skills, uh, and, and are they're an integral part of uh, their performance uh, makeup um so uh, you know so i think it's it's coming and and, and uh, uh you know again my part of part of is obviously curiosity of putting numbers to this type of uh training is part of my my own internal curiosity, sure, uh, sure, of course. But also, uh, I want to—I want people to see uh, the significance of of uh, putting time into to these different uh, life skills.
0: Well, and I think I couldn't agree more because I think as athletes, regardless, you know, if you're fortunate and um, blessed enough to, athletically and just in energy in general to be a part of the NHL such, you know, incredibly competitive situations where you're the elite of the elite, even when you're in that, you know, it's not forever um, because your body wears out, your mind wears out. I think even your heart around it moves on to other things, um, even though it's always, I, I always think if you're a true athlete, I always think your first love is your sport and, no significant other may want to hear that, but I do think it's the truth. Um, I, But with that, the the beauty of it is while the sport ends, the life skills that are fostered from sport are unbelievable. And, and I'm biased because I am an athlete, but I always love working with my fellow athletes because there's just something that there's an understanding there. And when you go to work or you're in sales or you're coaching or whatever, all those life skills translate. Um, and what I love about what you do is you can train them to – be better athletes, optimize themselves as humans, you know, be a good person. And as our young people are really facing a lot more earlier on, and, you know, even youth suicide is on a rise and there's heavy conversation on that and PTSD with our veterans. um, These are skill sets that athletes can take on and then once they're done with their sport, live better themselves. And then in turn, kind of share their gospel, like the way, you know, you said your pastor from a Swedish church or your mother, um, these little side conversations, you know, can save a life of here's what I, here's what I've done, or here's what I'm doing, let alone, like you, you have a professional organization that's, we have formal training here, um, here's, and then you get into the arena of, we go from professional athlete, or being best athlete, to now you're helping humanity, like, you're really having impact as a human, um, and saving some of our young people's lives, and really questioning in a better way, uh, and those conversations might happen for us at, maybe 18, 20, 25, 30, what have you, you know, now 12-year-olds are faced with some really heavy questioning and they see some of their peers, you know, falling victim to suicide. Um, When you have, when your business started, did you anticipate parents seeking you out or kids seeking you out for this additional skill set?
1: Well, most definitely, I think it's a combination of, uh, for the most part, it's a combination of the kids and parents. I think kids... I think you know the kids that I've worked with they know they you know um some of them at a young age lose love for the game too young and you um, out. <laughs> yeah and early you know sports specialization from an early age uh, I don't think parents really fully grasp um what can happen and uh um and not most likely not to their their fault they don't they they don't probably realize the, the research behind it um, athlete transition I think is what you're touching on uh, in terms of, of life skills um, that translate beyond the experience and to a certain degree I think these skills are just assumed that you'll require and you do I think you do to a certain degree um, but again they the, the message that we're trying to get across with our our, our services that uh, yes you do Many, many athletes, uh, they receive these, and, and, and these skills are generated just by moving through the experience, but um, they can be enhanced, especially when we address and educate uh, leadership around the kids, which will be a part of what we do, ensuring that um, coaches, uh, leadership, parents, um, and the kids are all Pushing and pulling in the same direction, and, and understanding what the experience is about, and how to maximize it. Um, and then uh, I did a little research into athlete transition in my masters, and uh, it is a it's significant, and it and it uh, people think it only relates to elite amateur or professional sport as a, as a challenge, uh, which is not the case. Um, it can be at at a young age. Uh, in the teenage years especially if you've specialized in sport for many years as a young athlete and uh, all of a sudden now you have uh, limited options um, to play at a high level uh, your whole identity is based around that sport and that that time you put into it um, which you know which is a can be a great thing as well and, and serves many people uh, well uh, putting that time into it but it can also Uh, lead to uh, going through an athlete transition at a young age which um, you know research says about a two-year process to really figure out who you are after after you're done playing and and the numbers of uh, of mental health uh, issues uh, bump up um, significantly compared to uh, the general population Uh, so about one in four athletes it might be that was uh, several years ago but one in four athletes will experience uh, mental health issues uh in their in their transition out of sport so yeah again um working on enhancing these life skills and uh, uh, developing um character and and things that will translate into uh, all aspects of life once we once we leave our sport and um, you know, most definitely, uh, these things and, and the approach I've taken and the mindset that I've worked on and, uh, has contributed to, to my transition and, and, um, the, the life of an entrepreneur and, um, sure. a business person, uh, they're the same, uh, same skills we can use as an athlete and they're, they're transferable, even, even in health, um, taking care of yourself, uh, uh, relationships, um, you know, these, these mindsets and, and, uh, the philosophy, um, that we can take and, and the approach we can take are, these are transferable life skills that, that, uh, we're working on.
0: I, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And they're, they're constantly improving. I think even when you, you know, masters and NHL and all this experience, I think as we, the older we get, we really see it's a never ending evolving process, which is also kind of exciting because then, unlike sports it, it never really has to end um uh walk us through a little bit of how um if i was an athlete coming to you and the reason i asked about you know our kids coming to our parents because i see so much with what i do where our kids will often come and they're like read packages on paper or or nutrients on paper, and then they'll be like, well, I'm going to eat healthier. And then the family will actually start eating healthier because the kid is. So I've seen it. We're just in such a transitional space in these generations. So I love to see it. I just see our young humans exposed to so much more for better or for worse. But I see them almost influencing their parents more than the parents coming in, even though the parents were the targeted market. but walk us through a little bit if a young human comes to you and they're like, what is step one of being like, all right, I'm signing up for the program. Is it, you know, do you start with like a conversation, a meeting, and then you do individual uh, scheduling and it's like one week, two week. Like, tell me about the program.
1: Yeah, definitely for, for um, as it is right now, I'm operating uh, still on my own, uh, but we will be, we will be launching uh, the multi- coach platform uh, very soon um but yeah as it is right now uh i primarily work uh, with uh one-on-one clients or and then um i do a number of team uh, or group uh, sessions uh but yeah um you come to me and uh we have an initial discussion and i talk to the parents talk to the kids ensure that they understand what they're what they're getting into and and um, what the process will be. We discuss frequency and uh, duration of the program, uh, which I I recommend um, at least a, a two to three month commitment of eight, eight sessions. Um, and I find that uh, and that's you know you have to give it a you have to give it a shot. And, and some people will some people will realize benefit uh, early on. Others will uh, will take uh, several months to to have a a realization on how it's affecting them. Um, So we, you know, encourage giving it uh, giving it a a good amount of time and commitment to it. Uh, And then I'm, you know, I'm I'm, what I do is heavily based on mindfulness practice, Um, but we we integrate uh, many different concepts around. sport and performance resilience um, and and linked back to uh, practicing uh, present moment awareness and and paying attention in a particular way to our experience so um so that's how i'm still operating but we are uh with the with the expansion of uh, what we're doing um the process will be uh you know getting involved with a, an initial assessment, um, uh, which is a, a strength-based uh, assessment uh, that looks at um, 10 life skills, core competencies. It looks at mindset orientation. It looks at resiliency. Uh, it looks at our, um, our environmental influences. And, uh, and then we, we figure out where you're at and have a better understanding of, of what your strengths are And uh, we work from there and say, you are, you are this, you, you, this is, this is, this is who you are. Let's work from there. And then um, unlike strength finder, which I'm sure you're aware of um, our assessment, we look at, we don't, we don't, uh, we don't uh, disregard areas of of opportunity for improvement. Um, So we start with, I can where my strengths are. And then we we gradually, uh, you know, work on those other areas uh, of of improvement where we can um, boost our potential even more. So um, that will be part of the new system um, where we we, we develop that story. And then from there, um, we have a variety of different uh, experts and professionals that bring their own unique uh, experience uh, to this type of coaching. Um, You mentioned Robert. Uh, he is uh, he's someone that uh, I look forward to working with on on this uh, platform. He'd be again. He'd be more. Uh, he can speak to, to many different things um, in terms of performance and 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 uh, mentoring in that way. But he also has a psychotherapy uh, practice and background, which um, will be part of the system as well for more. For more clinical uh, uh, designations uh, we'll have people that can can address uh, address those needs as well because for me I, I I know the limits and the scope of my expertise um, I am not a uh, I 'm not a mental health professional i 'm not a registered counselor um, so I understand that I, I understand where my my limits are, and people like Robert um, we have we have an ecosystem where I can refer uh, people that, that need that that uh, that clinical that clinical help. Um,
0: well, and I, uh, I, just want to, I want to champion that so much because I think in our, well, in America's healthcare system, which we won't compare to Canada, because that's a whole other podcast. Um, We're hopefully <laughs> we need, we need some evolution yeah. down here, uh, to say yeah. the least. And if you're not out there, sign up to vote yet yeah, in America, go vote. Um, but it's, it's, it's a hodgepodge of things. We really have to take hold of responsibility for our own mental and physical health, and to have a, an advocate in the game, mental health or physical health, where your doctor, physician, coach, mentor can say here's what I do and here's where I refer you to this. I think that's a responsibility that genuinely needs to be acknowledged because so often in America, you'll go to the doctor, a general practitioner, and it'll be like, okay, well, here's what you do for your broken bone, what have you. But you, you kind of get very general diagnosis or diagnostic Situations, whereas it really should be okay. This is a mental health situation. Let's send you to this professional, and then within that mental health, we've either got coaching. Maybe it's neurofeedbacking to do. Maybe it's EMDR. And uh, there's it, you really got to know. And as a consumer or individual, you don't even know those things. So you have to put so much trust into who you're working with, and. if the person you're working with isn't really a good person or they're lazy or it's about money, you can, I mean, your health is really subject to risk. So we're at a point in this point as consumers, as humans, we need to like figure out as much as we can and find the right team to be like, oh, okay, I, re- I can really trust Chris. I don't know about EMDR, but he knows Robert and he said to go here. So you really need these good people in your mix. So I just, I really want to applaud that you can respectfully know your space and then build out your team accordingly. So you can, you know, not only build a business, but help the people you're helping as, as much as you possibly can
1: yeah and that's you know a big thing for me uh when i started um you know i purposely in my communication i purposely would do my best to stay away from mental health um because i know my my limits and so for, for me i'm i'm i view my role as a proactive skill development um and uh you know something that that uh again um i talked about my my struggles um but the biggest thing that i want people to know is that you don't have to be struggling to benefit from developing these skills and um you know and then understanding i i agree there's i get very frustrated there's a lot of people that talk about mental health and offer advice and Uh, talk about mental health professionals in a way that if you had a physician managing someone with cancer you would not talk about uh, them in any negative way I mean I I heard something the other day on a on a very popular hockey podcast where one of the one of the guys said um, basically said you have to be somewhat of a narcissist to be a psychiatrist and I was just like he's like, uh, you think you can fix other people's problems with, and can't even fix your own. I'm just like, that is not, <laughs> that is not a really good message. Um, was it an older people, person?
0: Do you know by chance? No,
1: it was a young, it was a young oh. person. It was, wow.
0: yeah. Hockey,
1: okay. hockey is that macho, you know? Um, and then the stigma, it just, it just pumped into the stigma of mental sure. health. It's, um, and, uh, you know these people are the psychiatrists that I know and work with are compassionate. They're highly trained. They help millions of people, and um, but there's just this there's something about mental health and the mind that people people feel like they can they can freely um, have this uh, this opinion about, and they um, you know. They can be unqualified to uh, to give advice on depression and and um, other other brain diseases like that. And so I agree, and and I am very very aware of my limits. And in when I'm talking about um, these things, I, I'm I'm very from the start. I wanted to make sure that this was about. A proactive skill development and and um uh, rather than um you know managing uh, mental health which i i consider uh clinical clinical designations um uh for me that's what mental health uh, means brain health these are when we have a, a mental health issue this is a brain disease and um again that intangible nature of it is it's hard for people to understand um but i can tell you if you've experienced bipolar disorder it is it is absolutely crippling and and it's painful and but it's hard to see so um uh i work with a psychiatrist on a chronic brain disease program for university of british columbia and we have people there with parkinson's huntington's um Uh, Mood disorders, depression, and um, you look at Parkinson's patients or Huntington's disease, and and it's a brain disease, and you can see it's it's you can see in their movements. So people say yes, that's they're suffering. Um, But with the same in the same sentence, bipolar, it's hard. It's really hard to see, especially in my case when it was. It's a lower a lower degree of, of bipolar disorder. Um, so, it really is hard for people to to relate to, and and um, and I think that's a, a big issue with uh, people making comments uh, like that fellow um, that that just kind of pumped into the stigma. Um, so yeah.
0: Well, you know, it's, it's, it's just, I mean, unfortunately it really is just such new conversation. You see the NFL and the brain injuries and players dying and that, you know, and there's, it's, it's just now happening and it really is unfortunate that we're this late in the game, particularly on sports and concussions and the damage that happened there. Then you get into like what you were just saying, Parkinson's. And, um, if you've ever experienced, um, a family member with Alzheimer's or any of these things, so to really watch them lose who they really are and, and, or PTSD, I have a brother in the military. That came home and, and you know, if you have a severed arm or something and you're a veteran, you can see it, you can deal with it. PTSD in the brain, you you can't. And again, so much of our society labels mental anything around weakness, where you know, I've had this incredible opportunity to have, to do some of these modalities and technologies and see improvements in myself. And it's a complete luxury, let alone if your insurance covers it, you have time to do it. Um, but it really shouldn't even be a luxury anymore. It should be something that we need to address, and it, it's being talked about more, I don't know if you follow Kanye West at all, but he's being very public, I don't know intentionally or not, about his bipolar disorder, and it's it's really erupting right now, um, and I would never wish this upon any human, regardless of how anyone feels about Kanye, uh, but I will say one upside, if we can pull anything from it, is it's stimulating conversation, you know, maybe young people at home or parents are saying, oh my god, that's what I have, or this is, this is how bad it is, or this is why we need to address this and put funding into our VA and mental health and get away from furnaces. furnaces, furnaces pharmaceuticals and all these business strategic partnerships um it's exposing how the mental if i mean again athlete i I think is more important than the physical if you don't have your brain and you don't understand what's going on within you you really can't train the physical or be happy more importantly um without that piece so it sucks that this is you know number two question to number one physical like it should be the complete opposite
1: yeah and and you know that's i think i i can applaud kanye west um I definitely, I definitely think that. Uh, uh, again, I saw, I, I watched another, another podcast on YouTube the other day where they're talking about Kanye West, and they were essentially laughing at his bipolar disorder, and essentially, you know, saying that just the way they're talking about it. Um, whatever you, you can say whatever you want about Kanye West, but. Um, you know, he is managing something that is, is crippling and yeah. Uh, yeah. it is a significant brain disease that, that uh, people, um, it's hard for people to understand or relate to because it's, uh, they don't know how it feels and they may not have been around anyone that has experienced it. But I can tell you right now that it's not only affects that person, but it affects the, the family in a big way as well. So, um, and, and again, there's varying degrees of, of bipolar disorder. Like he would, he, I don't know his situation, but he, it looks, it looks most likely he has a severe case, a severe degree. Um, for me, uh, it's quite manageable with, with medication, mindfulness, the, the manic states that I would experience weren't, weren't, uh, really out of control. They were, they're, um, you know, I definitely experienced them, but I, you know, I didn't end up doing some severe erratic behavior. Um, my, my type of bipolar is mainly, uh, crippling anxiety and depression. Um, but again, I'm, I'm 10 years, I'm probably 10 years into managing it. And I found, I found, um, what works in terms of uh developing and and maintaining a productive happy life um but it's taken some it's taken some trial and error for sure so um so yeah point being is that there are people out there doing some some uh you know speaking about it and and um uh, but it is still a lot of conversation that is not uh not not serving it well and then feeding feeding the stigma 100 so. Totally.
0: Well, that's I mean, that's quite literally why turmeric and tequila is here. I mean, It's the balance of all things. Uh, the show is really not about either thing. Obviously, turmeric is anti-fluorotary and tequila is uh, an excellent libation. Um, but you've got to balance it. You can't be too pressed around one side or the other, especially as athletes. I always think more is more, train is more, rest less. And then when you hit the wall, it's and if you can pull back. And like you said, 10 years. I've taken many years of you know, if any of these conversations streamline anyone else's process that's what this whole podcast is about. And I think there's such valuable intel uh, with the in-between, we might not, you're obviously medically and certified and and qualified on several levels. I'm not on the medical end by any means, but if even this conversation can spark someone digging further into their journey, that's what it's all about. I want to be mindful of your time. Speaking of, uh, can you just give us a quick rundown of maybe like what your day looks like? Do you wake up like meditate and then maybe give me a little idea of how you maintain on this, um, mindfulness piece just in your day to day.
1: Uh, Well, uh, now it's, um, my, my time in formal practice is, uh, is definitely uh, less than what it used to be. Um, so, and that's due to, uh, I have a two-year-old and uh, <laughs> so I don't have time to sit for 40 minutes twice a day like I used to. Uh, so I, I definitely, I, I try to get in um, a formal practice, uh, you know, multiple times a day, short, short, uh, short moments. And then throughout activity um, all day, uh, ensuring that I am aware of, of aware of where I am, Paying attention and being present with where I am um, when I'm in conversations with people, ensuring that uh, I am present with those people, and doing so through uh, practices that I work on. Um, but yeah, finding finding moments uh, throughout the activity and uh, those those brief moments uh, to get informal practice, um, and that's the thing, you know, with with every. With every uh, with everyone, there's going to be a, a uh, path finding that frequency and, and, regularity that works for them. Uh, people are, uh, very busy and we are not, we're not trying to be monks, uh, with this practice. Um, we, uh, um, a term called householder mindfulness or meditation is what I like to use. It's like, we know we have other things to do. So, um, you can, you can, uh, start with five minutes a day, and that will, that will um, be a great place to start. Uh, I have a colleague that, that looked at uh, brain imaging, recent uh, research out of UCLA, and she contributed to that. Uh, and it showed in, in Alzheimer's uh, and dementia patients that 20 minutes a day for 30 days in a row of simply breath awareness, counting the breath, uh, led to uh, physical changes in the prefrontal cortex. In relation to uh, um, attention control, decision making, also some uh, physical changes in the hippocampus and the memory center of the brain. So, um, so definitely regularity with the practice, um, regularity with uh, informal practice during activity is um, is what I try to commit to these days. With uh, again um, building and, and overseeing uh, this company. Plus, I started another one during COVID, so there's two two companies rolling along, a two-year-old, and uh, I try to get it uh, get it in there as often as I can, but. Um, definitely not as much as I I used to when I had the time. Well,
0: well, I mean, real life is still a thing, but I think that's when you have a good foundation of that skill set. You can perhaps do a little bit less, you know, when duty calls and kind of rely on that foundation to kind of get you through and then, you know, wait till you have some more time, which might be in 18 years. but
1: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So,
0: I love it. Well, I mean, I encourage anyone, any athlete, any parent of athletes or anyone that's just maybe even a misdiagnosis, something that's questioning a better way. I really encourage them um, to seek Chris out, seek seek out what you're doing, check out a guy like Robert, dig into some of these different modalities that we talked about. Um, I'll I'll list some of those books that you mentioned. Is there an app that you use? Like I use, um, uh, what's the, I can completely drag it, but that goes to show you how much I do, but it's a meditation app, not calm. It's a headset, headspace.
1: Headspace, headspace, Yeah. yeah do you
0: recommend
1: any of those i haven't used uh i haven't used many apps Um, okay (laughs) i use insight timer to as a timer uh but yeah headspace seems to be uh quite effective calm um uh insight timer is is i believe it's there's some free guy meditations on there plus there's some paid paid stuff um yeah so those those work uh quite nicely. Um, And if you're, if you're really ambitious, uh, uh, sitting down by yourself and and setting a timer and uh, counting your breaths is a very valid, valid form of of practice. One to 10, back to one and uh, sit for five minutes and, and a very valid form of practice.
0: Okay. Challenge accepted. When I post this, I'll I'll put the challenge out there, and we'll see how many people can do it for even five minutes, which doesn't sound like a long time, but that's a yeah. long time. If you're meditating, doing sprints, or doing back squats, five minutes is a world. Um, yeah. I love it. So, give me really quick, and I'll let you go. Where do we find you? Hit me with hashtag uh, handles for Instagram, website, anywhere, any details.
1: Yeah, com is um, is a site right now. We'll be launching a new site uh, very shortly here it'll be a slight rebrand as well. Um, but for the time being aimmindtraining.com, uh, Instagram is aim.mind.training. Uh, Facebook is, um, aimmindtraining, um, YouTube, aimmindtraining. So uh, yeah, that's, yeah, that's pretty much aimmindtraining. You'll find me. Yeah.
0: Well, you nailed it on the branding. You get a gold star for me on that. Um, But I'm pumped about what you do. I'm really excited to see. uh, You said it's four years old. I can't wait to see how this is even in a couple years because of situations like Kanye, God bless him, and and his family, but, you know, where it's a little more in the spotlight. I'm really excited to see how our young humans are grasping on to this living a better way and approaching mental health the same way they would their physical health and, uh, you know, going to train on the field, and then they train off the field with conversations or mindfulness, meditation, uh, EMDR, what have you. Uh, I think it's a really powerful space and I will even say this as cliche as it sounds the more we can grip get a grip on ourselves and our own happiness I fully believe as a, as a community as a human race we can move towards a positive evolution and perhaps a little more peace in our world um, so <laughs> I'm here for this evolution
1: 100% Kristen thank you for having me and uh, I'd love to come back uh, anytime
0: yeah, we'll, ch- we'll check back in. If anything's helpful from our end uh, down here in America, from turmeric and tequila, let me know. I still, I keep in touch with, the pl- I coached for 10 years after college um, and like I said, competed across it. So I'm still, I still have my hand in the athletic arena a bit and um, I've sent some people to Robert. If I have some fitting individuals, I'll send them your wave, but I'm super excited to see how this grows and how this con- conversation opens up some major doors over the next few years.
1: Awesome, thank you.
0: Cool, we'll keep in touch. Uh best of luck with the family and hopefully we'll see you soon.
1: Thank you, Kristen.
0: Thanks, Chris. Take it easy.
1: Thank you for joining Turmeric and Tequila with your host, Kristen Olson. Tune in next time and don't forget to subscribe on Apple, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen.